time for swordplay. Alex, you live in the Twin Cities Metroplex. Last week, Minneapolis abolished the police force. I got a question for you. If there's something strange in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters! <laughs> we can't play the real song. It's copyrighted. This is Swordplay. <laughs> we are your hosts. That was too I, easy. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Zephaniah chapter 2. Zephaniah chapter 2. If you haven't read Zephaniah, open your Bibles, go read it. Very short book, packed with lots of interesting things. We covered chapter 1 last week, so Nick, let's jump into chapter 2 right away this week. Verse 1. That's right. Now, gather together, yeah, so. gather, oh shameless nation. Alex, why is Judah called a shameless nation? Well, uh, in my view, I think shame is, or shameless, is probably not the best translation here. Although Judah had become shameless, so it's it's not inaccurate, but probably not the best translation. Every other instance of this particular Hebrew word uh, in the underlying text means longing, to long for. And so the new question is, what were they without longing for? Uh, perhaps they were not longing for Yahweh like they should have, since the next few verses indicate they needed to seek him. Or perhaps Yahweh is alluding to the times where they were not longing or in need of anything because of the abundance that Yahweh had provided for them. And how did they repay him? With betrayal and idolatry. What are your thoughts, Nick? Yeah, uh, you, you point out the uh, linguistic challenge here of kind of aligning this with other appearances of the word. And so the, the new English translation, the Net uh, Bible, has undesirable uh, here. They're an undesirable nation. Uh, that is, God, it seems, no longer wants them due to their sins. In defense of the shameless translation, uh, no pun intended, um, the NRSV, that's how it reads. Um, there is a linguistic argument via the Aramaic that can be made for such a translation. And, and that's clear because many major translations put it that way in some form or fashion. The NIV, New Revised Standard, my English Standard Version has that. Um, and indeed, as we'll find in 3 verse 5, the unjust knows no shame. And since Judah had been and has become unjust, they were shameless. And look, whether undesired, shameful, or uneducated, as the Septuagint reads, Zephaniah's call is clear. Before disaster from Yahweh comes, before, 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 all in verse 2 there, before that disaster from Yahweh comes, you need to wake up and you need to repent. Well, I think uh, when we get to chapter 3, uh, I have a surprise in store for you with the word shame as well. It's a mm. different word. And so uh, just a little teaser there for you. It's true. There's some underlying uh, treasures hidden in that one. So nine times out of ten, no treasures underlying in the text. But uh, every now and then you find a jewel. And you're like, ah, that is helpful. Well, Nick, I can't uh, hardly wait for it. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> uh, okay, verse three. Judah is told to seek righteousness and humility. Will you unpack that for us, Nick? What does it mean to seek righteousness and humility? 
Yeah, both of these searches are linked to the verse begins, Seek Yahweh, all you humble in the land. And so this seems parallel to, or perhaps even identical to, following Yahweh. We actually had a discussion about this uh, in the previous episode. Go back and you can hear that when we talk about 1 verse 6. There I argued that following and seeking Yahweh no doubt meant to observe Torah, to keep the law, and therefore worship Yahweh in the manner he prescribed. And I concur with myself. (laughs) Uh, The (laughs) added requirements here of righteousness and humility, they are related to seeking Yahweh, namely right actions, which meet the demands of right relationship with Yahweh as prescribed in Torah, in the law. And so, in turn, all our interpersonal interactions with other people will similarly be righteous in, again, keeping with our right relationship via covenant. Uh, Humble people will seek out God's law in total dependence upon him for everything. The unfortunate and tragic thing is that all you humble of the land would no doubt be a minority of people uh, uh, by this time in Israel's history. But nevertheless, still you get the call here, some hope that's offered, glimmer of hope that is ultimately pointing to uh, chapter 3 and the hope that we'll talk about when we get there. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think these uh, qualities, I think you're right. Um, I concur with you as well, Nick. <laughs> and these uh, these qualities, they remind me as well of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes section, you know, the very first part where the real inheritors of the earth, the real sons of God, those who are really blessed by God, uh, it's the ones who are humble, who seek righteousness. And so it's interesting to see how righteousness and seeking righteousness and humility, it didn't mean that judgment would be averted. It wasn't going to make Babylon go away. But rather, it's stated here as a safeguard for yourself. And so that's kind of the next question in verse 3. How does Yahweh hide someone on the day of wrath? Well, uh, so seeking Yahweh... That means life, right? You can see Amos 5, 6, seek Yahweh and live. Um, so being hidden on the day of Yahweh, which is that day of Yahweh's wrath, it's the, the same day there, uh, that doesn't turn the day away. It's coming no matter what. But there may be shelter available for the humble remnant. Many Jews died when Babylon invaded, but some a remnant. They were spared when they went into exile. And Second Kings, Second uh, Kings twenty-four verses fourteen through uh, sixteen mention uh, uh, those who are taken away during the Babylonian invasion. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Uh, just dovetailing on Second Kings. If you go to chapter twenty-five, verse twelve, there's another remnant mentioned mm-hmm. that uh, is not taken into exile after Babylon destroys Jerusalem in five eighty-six BC. Uh, they are left in Judah, in the land, right. and these were the poorest in the land. They had nothing to begin with. Uh, they weren't killed. They weren't exiled. But instead, they were given houses to live in while they worked as vine dressers and plowmen. And this remnant, remnant would have been well off. This, this would have been a good deal. But through a series of circumstances, they ended up not trusting in Yahweh and going down to Egypt for security. And that's where they died as judgment for their lack of trust. 
And to read about that, it's in Jeremiah chapters 40 through 45. Pretty interesting story. So Yahweh's promise to shelter or hide the righteous during judgment uh, also reminds me of Jesus' words when he is giving his uh, judgment on uh, the churches in Revelation. He says to the church of Philadelphia, uh, Revelation 3.10, that he will keep them from the hour of testing because they have kept the word of perseverance. Uh, In addition to that, the examples of preserving Old Testament figures, such as obviously the big one, Noah and his family, uh, later when Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed, which will be mentioned here later in the chapter, uh, Lot is preserved with his family. Um, This seems seems to suggest that there is a pattern of God protecting the few who still seek him. And the uh, prophet that Yahweh sends to give them a message of hope for being hidden on the day of wrath Zephaniah, whose name means Yahweh has hidden. Yep. So lots of interesting things there. So beginning in verse 4, Alex, um, we have a list of other nations, uh, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, the Karathites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, uh, the Cushites, and Assyria. Um is there a pattern to the nations that are listed for punishment here? The way I like to say it is remember the news, the news, mm. N-E-W-S, north, east, west, and south. Uh, that's what's going on here to me. Ethiopia is gets the shortest mention probably just for the sake of completing the cardinal points of judgment. But all these nations are going to form the nations around Israel to the north, the east, the west, the south. Uh what else, Nick? Do you have any other thoughts on that? No, that's exactly right. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, uh, Ekron, these are all Philistine cities that are west of Judah. The Karathites there in verse 5 are inhabitants of the seacoast. They're probably, possibly, um, related to uh, Cretans from the Isle of Crete. They're also uh, west of Judah because they're typically identified with the Philistines. Uh, Moab and the Ammonites, verse 8, they are two Semitic tribes east of Judah, Ethiopia, or Cush, the Cushites. Uh, They are inhabitants of the Upper Nile, or southern Egypt, and uh, they would have been the southernmost people group known to Judah. And finally, Assyria, verse 13, they represent the north, because although they were geographically northeast of Judah, they would have invaded from the north. So, uh, that's exactly right. I think all four points of the compass are represented here. Well, Nick, in verse 5, there is a, a textual question here about the names of the nations. You mentioned uh, Karathites. Who were the Karathites, and why did they inhabit the seacoast? Uh, as I mentioned, possibly the Karathites are people from Crete who settled along the coast of Philistia and uh, the relationship between the Karathites and the Philistines, they, th- that relationship is debated. Were they the same uh, people? Were the Karathites a subgroup of the Philistines? Were they different ethnic groups entirely? Uh, one reasonable conclusion seems to be that the Karathites were the Cretans, and the Pelathites, who are uh, often mentioned with the Karathites, the Pelathites were uh, uh, the Philistines. Uh, so geographically identified um, 
I mean, they come from the same area, but there does seem to be some ethnic distinction there. But that's what I found. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, in verse 5, um, there is a mention of Canaan. And so I thought that was strange. Uh, And it got me thinking about the conquest. You know, during the conquest of the Promised Land, all of the Canaanites were to be annihilated. Exodus 23, 23. But some Canaanites escaped, specifically some of the Anakim. Uh, It's Joshua 11, 22. Uh, And if you're not familiar with the Anakim, those are the giants. And so uh, they escape. And where did they escape to? The Philistine cities on the coast. Uh, And where does Goliath pop up from later on in history at the time of David? the Philistine cities on the coast. Uh, By the time Joshua was old, he couldn't quite finish the conquest. There were still uh, nations that Yahweh wanted removed, and one of those was the Philistines. He never got around to taking them out, and you read about this in Joshua 13. But before he dies, he makes his big speech, and he, he clearly states that the job must be finished, or else those peoples, the Philistines, the ones that are left, and their gods would be a snare and a trap to Israel. That's in Joshua 23, uh, 13. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, um, and what do you see happening in history? Uh, this constant conflict between Israel and Philistia. So I think maybe, uh, just maybe, the Carathites are leftover Canaanites who migrated to Philistia and became the Sea Peoples and intermingled in between there. And that's why mm. it's hard to sort of figure out who they are. And those sea peoples also end up being the uh, Phoenician peoples, right, Uh, along the coast. So it's kind of a mixed bag. But anyway, I think there might be a clue, a little breadcrumb in there by the mentioning of Canaan. So any thoughts there, Nick? Well, uh, another theory. Um, Look, whether Philistines, Carathites... Bottom line is, verse 5, the word of Yahweh is against you. It's against them. And so, Alex, talk for a minute. What does it mean for the word of Yahweh to be against these peoples? Well, Yahweh has had a long-standing judgment against these peoples. Uh, Interesting uh, verse mentioned just a moment ago. Exodus 23, 23 says, The angel that Yahweh will send before the Israelites to drive out these nations is said to have Yahweh's name in him. That's Exodus 23, 21. In our Angel of Yahweh podcast, Uh, Just a couple episodes ago, we identified that the name of Yahweh and the word of Yahweh were sometimes synonymous with the angel of Yahweh. So Zephaniah 2.5 may be indicating more than just a prophetic word against the Philistines, but actually the word of Yahweh himself, the theophany, is against them. And I wonder what Jesus was doing before his incarnation. Hmm. Hmm. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Yeah. Hmm. 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 Interesting. (laughs) Well, Nick, last question for verse 5. Did Zephaniah speak to other nations? Uh, I ask because uh, why are they included in the letter if the audience is supposed to be Judah? Yeah, that's a good question. As mentioned when we discussed the audience in uh, the last episode, the primary audience of Zephaniah's prophecy is Judah, and yet at the same time, Yahweh is God of the nations. Uh, Psalm 2, they rage and he laughs in derision from heaven. Daniel 2, uh, 21 talks about how he raises up kings and removes kings. Acts seventeen twenty four, kind of the New Testament update that... Uh, that he that the God who made everything, he's Lord of heaven and earth. And so 
Uh, yeah, he is God of all nations, and so the nations that cause Judah to stumble will similarly face the wrath of Yahweh. If Yahweh will punish the sins of his own people, surely he will punish the sins of the other nations. And that's what he says he promises to do and does um, historically. So uh, that's what I see. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think that's right. In addition, um, the nations and Israel, you know, they weren't completely isolated one from another. Uh, It's likely that a prophetic judgment cast against all the nations would be big news. It would be circulated by the peoples, especially among the trade routes. And though this prophecy originates in Judah, uh, it may have had a broader reach, especially since the date of Zephaniah's writing still puts the events a few decades out in the future. So there's time for this for the word to spread. And it's also not out of the question that Yahweh uh, would have been sending prophets to other nations as well. We know that happened with Jonah going to Nineveh, and Nineveh's going to be a part of this judgment, uh, although that was much earlier than Zephaniah. Plus, there are other curious instances in the Old Testament of prophets belonging to Yahweh, but not belonging to Israel, like Balaam, right? Mm. And so uh, it seems like Yahweh does get the word out, to other nations, whether they listen or not. Any final thoughts there, Nick? No, good connections. All right. Well, let's move on to verses 7 and 9. Uh, this is a, could be one of the themes uh, of the letter that pops up here in chapter 2 and later in chapter 3. Uh, it's the idea of a remnant. Now, Nick, did the remnant of Judah, as it says here in these verses, did they ever dwell alone or inherit the nations that are being judged? So, historically, um, the case has been made that during the period of the Maccabees, under Judas Maccabees, specifically in the 2nd century B.C., a band of Israelites did launch a successful attack, and they did destroy a pagan temple at Azotus, and they plundered Philistine towns. First Maccabees 5 and verse 68 talks about that. Similarly, Judas also led an assault on the Ammonites, in which they were crushed before him. First Maccabees 5, 6, and 7, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, talks about. Uh, Josephus also records how Alexander Janaeus, in the first century B.C., also dominated the Moabites, made them bring tribute. Uh, that's recorded in Antiquities 13, um, Let's see, what is that? Book 13, chapter 13, verse 5. Is that how you count Josephus? I think so. Um, There are also uh, some, uh, or rather, these intertestamental episodes, I should say, uh, are usually pointed to and um, presented as qualifying these uh, plundering episodes of the nations named, specifically uh, Philistia, the houses of Ashkelon there in verse 9, and then the Moabites, the Ammonites um, there in verse 9. So there's a case to be made for that, and some have made it. Verse 11, though, uh, seems to show that there is a spiritual component to the restoration of the fortunes of Yahweh's people, uh, that uh, Yahweh is going to shrivel says the NRSV, or starve, uh, other translations say, uh, these other gods. And uh, they will bow down, uh, or actually the people will bow down, I suppose. But anyway, 
in Messiah, Yahweh's people's fortunes are restored to the utmost. There are, interestingly, some descendants of the Carathites present on Pentecost, the Cretans in 2 verse 11 of the book of Acts, and quite possibly some Moabites because there are Arabians also mentioned there in 2 verse 11 of Acts. And sometimes, um, for example, in Josephus, uh, they the Moabites are called Arabian Moabites, uh, and there are others who classify them the same way. So uh, you could even see there in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost how um, in Messiah and in the church, Yahweh is doing something among the nations and even perhaps to a degree passing judgment on their gods. But um, So that's a bit of what I see. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I think I'm going to go the same direction. I think inheriting all the nations uh, is going to be fulfilled in Messiah. You know, historically, uh, yeah, Judah did not really take over these nations. Uh, You mentioned those cases with the Maccabees. Uh, The way I see that is like the stuff with the Maccabees, it, it was so far removed from Zephaniah's day. I mean, we're talking about not only coming out of Babylonian captivity, but then making it through the Medo-Persian Empire and then the Grecian, but like, you know, the tail end of the Grecian Empire and the beginning rise of the Rome. There's just so many other things going on that like it's it's so far removed. It's so fleeting. It doesn't last very long. It's hardly peaceful at all. Um, and they're definitely not alone or um, sovereign in any way. And so just historically, I have a hard time buying that case. Um but then again, you know, I don't think it's a historical prophecy meant to be fulfilled by national Israel or ethnic Jews. And so the key comes in how one interprets the identity of the remnant. So as you pointed out in verse 11, this brings a spiritual component where these nations and people groups, uh, they're going to bow down to Yahweh. And so something we'll get into next week is chapter 3, verse 12 and following, where the remnant is mentioned again in a passage with more messianic overtones. So yeah, I, I don't think the Jews experienced peace uh, or exercised dominion over the nations, let alone even their own nation, after Babylonian captivity. Their history was riddled with disaster after disaster, even up to the time of Jesus. So the remnant, I think, is to be taken um, as those who would receive the gospel, including the Gentiles. So to use Paul's language in Romans 11, this would be a single olive tree made of both natural branches, Israelites, and wild olive branches grafted in, Gentiles. And who will inherit the earth, right? There is going to be dominion over the earth, but who's going to rule the nations? Who's going to inherit the earth? Well, uh, Paul says that that's going to be the Christian, those who are in Christ Jesus, those who persevere with faith, 2 Timothy 2.12. If you endure, you will uh, reign with him. Revelation 2.26, Jesus to uh, one of the churches of Revelation, same thing, I'll give you authority over the nations as my Father has given authority over the nations to me. And so that's a promise in the future for faithful Christians. And I don't really like it when people label this idea as replacement theology or supersessionism, or they put up the straw man argument that, uh, you know, you're saying the church replaced Israel. That's not accurate. That's that's framing the idea in a way that's easy for them to take down. <clears throat> to be more accurate, faithful Israel became the church. 
and that included Gentiles. That's the mystery of the gospel, Ephesians chapter 3. So, and that mystery was included in Old Testament prophecy, if you read the end of Romans 16. So yeah, faithful Israel became the church, and that includes Gentiles and Israelites. Any thoughts there, Nick? Uh, well, thank you for that overview of replacement theology. Um, next question. I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. <clears throat> well, uh, moving on now. Verses yeah. 8 and 10. So mentioning Moab and Ammon, they were taunting Israel. They were reviling Judah. Uh, how, how did they do that? What, what instance could this be referring to, Nick? Uh, well, I think the question may be, when didn't they taunt and revile Judah? Uh, following the Exodus, uh, Balak summoned Balaam to curse Israel while they were camped in the plains of Moab. Uh, Numbers chapters 22 through 24 records that. Uh, actually triggers a prophecy of Moab's destruction, which is uttered in uh, verse 17 of Numbers 24. And then during the time of the judges, the king of the Ammonites told Israel, or specifically Jephthah, uh, to restore the land Israel had allegedly stolen from Ammon. And this episode may be in view here uh, because they're boasting, they made boast against their territory and uh, that sort of thing. Although probably some kind of contemporary episode may be in view here. Uh, probably is in view. It's unrecorded in Scripture, but it's not unknown to Yahweh. And he sees, he knows, and uh, Moab and Ammon will come under his judgment for it. So a uh, couple of options there. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, just a, a minute on Moab and, and Ammon. You know, these are the descendants of Lot. Yeah, there's no controversy there, right? Yeah. <laughs> Go back and read Genesis. You know, by the way, do you remember Milcom from chapter 1? Go back to last week's podcast. How could I forget? Uh, yeah, it's the Ammonite deity. What's he known for? Child sacrifice. Oh, remember uh, King Mesha of Moab? What did he do? Oh, that's right. He sacrificed his oldest son, on the walls of the city as they were being attacked by Israel. It's in 2 Kings chapter 3. And you know what's disturbing is that the sacrifice apparently worked because Israel withdrew from the battle, even though there were moments from an overwhelming victory. You know, there's a, in archaeology, there's a, a stella that's been discovered, a Moabite stella called the Mesha inscription, where he attributes that victory to who? The god Kamosh another deity of child sacrifice. So it seems to me that Moab and Ammon were just full of child sacrifice. And after all their taunting and reviling, I guess they convinced Israel to be just like them. And Yahweh says that Moab and Ammon will be the new Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's strong language. So just a little bit about Moab and Ammon. They're taunting, reviling, the background of their idolatry and child sacrifice and how Israel ended up being just like them. Well, Nick, uh, verse 9. This is actually a a Septuagint question. This isn't found in the Masoretic text. In the Septuagint, it talks about not only Moab and Ammon, but also Damascus. It says, Damascus will be removed unto the age. Uh, How, what do you think about that? How is that possible? 
Uh, okay, so first, um, Damascus in the Septuagint seems to be a misreading of the Hebrew text, as I understand it, uh, reading a Dalit for a mem, um, which produced uh, Damascus for Mimshak. That's the technical jargon there, I guess. Anyway, a misreading that instead of being translated possessed, you end up with the reading of Damascus in the Septuagint. Uh, so, uh, for example, the New Revised Standard there, in the middle of the verse, says, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. Uh, that's a description of what Moab and Ammon will become. Unto the age, uh, that seems to answer to the a waste forever, um, which is parallel to the nettles and the salt pits that possess that land. And so the bottom line is Moab, Ammon, uh, they are going to become this uninhabitable place. And indeed, uh, today it is a salty, barren wasteland. So prophecy fulfilled. Um, uh, so that's a bit about what I see. What do you see, Alex? Yeah, it is an interesting um, misreading of the text because Hebrew, uh, ancient Hebrew manuscripts don't have vowels. They just have consonants. And so if one consonant is misread, uh, then it can come up with a completely different word. And right. in fact, there are multiple words that use the same consonants, but you fill them in with different vowels and you end up with different words. And so that's how you get variant readings of uh, the Hebrew text in and of itself, and then especially when you're translating from that into another language like Greek. Um, so I think, however, I'll make the case then that the Septuagint may be correct. Um, perhaps it's working off of a different Hebrew manuscript than the uh, Masoretic text that we have today. And so uh, if you follow the pattern of judgment against the nations to the east, so following the cardinal directions of judgment, you have Moab and Ammon in the east, but just above Ammon is Damascus. And so you could say that that does fit the context, at least. It is in the east, getting a little bit to the northeast, but um, that might work. Also, the misreading of the Hebrew text um, doesn't quite explain the rest of the verse in the Septuagint that describes Damascus as a heap on the threshing floor. And so is there a misreading where heap on the threshing floor came out of the Hebrew for nettles and salt pits. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, I haven't seen that. Um, but that last phrase, I think you're right, removed unto the age in the Septuagint. It could be uh, translated the same as the, the Hebrew, a waste land forever. Uh, so you're right there. It's interesting, though, that we're just, we were just speaking of the spiritual component of restoration through Messiah of the remnant. And that term, unto the age... Uh, that shows up here in verse uh, 10, and it reminds me of Jesus saying he'll be with his disciples unto the age. And so that phrase, it does have some New Testament theology within it, but whether that's was meant to be communicated in this particular passage or not in the Septuagint, uh, uh, I'm unsure. But I thought I'd throw it in there just because uh, it seemed interesting to me. Well, Nick, verse 11, we have an interesting verse about uh, Yahweh saying he's going to starve all of the gods. So what does it mean that Yahweh will starve all of the gods in verse 11? Yeah, my English standard says uh, famish. The new English translation says weaken. Uh, literally, it uh, the word there means to make lean, and it probably has to do with the food portions 
that were offered on the altars to the pagan deities. And probably in view are Baal, Milcom, Dagon, the astral deities from chapter 1, verses 4 through 6 that we talked about at some length in the previous episode. Um, So the people of these lands are going out of business. And that means that the worship of these false gods is going to go out of business as well. Uh, Worship of these gods will go away. Essentially, these gods will starve since they're not getting their food portions in worship. And then uh, true worship of God, the true God, Yahweh, will increase. And that's what we see here uh, where um, as these gods lose ground, as they weaken, Yahweh gains that ground. And... um, The universality, I think, is seen here in the use of, uh, first, all the gods of the earth are going to uh, shrivel up. They're going to be famished, starved. But also, all the coasts and islands of the nations, uh, all the people there are going to bow the knee to Yahweh and worship him. And so, just as all the gods are doomed, so all the peoples will worship Yahweh. So, um, certainly reversal uh, taking place here. Uh, what do you see, Alex? Yeah, I think that's right. Divine reversal and that I think, f- you know, it fits. It finds its fulfillment in the Messianic age. Um, it's common throughout the ancient Near East, speaking of starving the gods, throughout the whole ancient Near East, it's common for people to believe that the gods they worshipped consumed and were strengthened by the sacrifices brought before them. Uh, the physical sacrifice would remain to be shared in by the worshipers. And so, you know, they didn't see it like disappearing into thin air. Um, but there was this idea that the life force that's within the food, whatever was being sacrificed, uh, especially blood, that that life force was somehow taken out of it and absorbed or consumed by the deity. And so, let that soak in for a moment in the context of child sacrifice, right? Mm. Just speaking of Ammon and Moab. Uh, in fact, it was thought that the more you sacrifice to the gods, the more power they gain. And the more power they gain, they can, in return, bless the land with fertility or do battle on your behalf between you and the other nations because your god is stronger than their god because you have powered them up with more sacrifices. And uh, the more potent the sacrifice, the more power they get. So I cover this in more detail in my thesis on the concept of life force. If you want to read that, you can email me, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. But it's important to recognize that Yahweh is never said to consume the sacrifices from Israelite worshipers. On the contrary, he specifically denies being hungry, let alone asking his people to feed him. That's Psalm 50, verse 12. Now, I take the gods of the nations to be real entities, uh, but they were not creators of anything. Uh, They had no life force to give, but rather they leech off of the life force given by their human subjects. Yahweh, who is the source of all life force, he's the creator of all life, he's going to starve these imposters to death. No more gods of the nations. Instead, we will make disciples of all the nations and the powers of darkness will atrophy. Now, it's it's interesting, though. You don't see this happening until Messiah because 
even if these gods are conquered by Babylon, Babylon has plenty of gods to go around. And they'll make it clear that their gods are now in charge and they're superior because they just defeated your gods. Because otherwise, they wouldn't have conquered your nation. So you don't see this reversal until Messiah, until the Great Commission. You have any thoughts there, Nick? Well, it just reminds me uh, when we covered, uh, what, uh, Bell and the Dragon? Uh, that's one right. One of the uh, uh, apocryphal works that are, that's a, an like addition to the book Daniel. of Daniel. Yeah. Um, and the priest would sneak in at night and eat the uh, eat the uh, sacrifice. That's right. Yep. That had been made. That's right. And would trick the people. Oh, yeah, he, he's eating it. He's Our God is eating the sacrifice. Yeah, I needed a little more theatrics there. Yeah. Those kinds of theatrics weren't necessary throughout all of the ancient Near East. Uh, people had no problem believing that the god still consumed the life force out of it, but you, after a certain ritual was done, uh, could partake in the same sacrifice that was offered and thus share in the life force with the deity. But, uh, yeah, quite quite the, um, quite the deception, quite the show being put on by... Uh, bell's temple there yeah that uh, episode available in the uh, swordplay archives by the way that's right eventually we'll cover all the apocrypha books we can make a whole little section just for the apocrypha maybe put it up on the website nice well anyway uh verse 11 i think you mentioned this nick but it, i think it's just a good reminder why are the coastlands mentioned when moab and ammon are actually inland this seems out of context um, well, uh, it seems to be a, a poetic way of describing all people everywhere, um, even those on far-flung islands, uh, the islands of the nations, presumably Gentile in ethnicity, they will bow down, uh, and that is to Yahweh. Uh, so I think uh, this, again, maybe just poetic language for the universality of the spread of Yahweh worship. I think that makes sense. Uh, what, is it the Septuagint that says the islands everywhere? Is, so it's all-encompassing, even even to the small islands around the nations. Now, um, Nick, we've covered the West, Philistia. We've covered the East now, Ammon and Moab. And here we are, a uh, little short blurb about the South. Uh, what significance does Ethiopia have at the time? That's what is mentioned for the Southern nation. Right. I thought the, the big baddie down Africa way was Egypt right. in the lower Nile, northern, northern Africa. So, so why Cush? Why the Ethiopians? Uh, a few options uh, present possibilities. could be a reference to just the edge of the earth, the furthest known, then known, location south of Judah. So God's power reaches to the ends of the earth. That's uh, one option. Uh, second, while unlikely, uh, as discussed previously in uh, the, the, the last episode, Cushi, who's mentioned as a descendant, um, what is he, the father of Zephaniah? Uh, he's mentioned in Zephaniah's genealogy, uh, which may be a veiled reference to Cush, uh, but uh, we, I think we talked through uh, the problems with that interpretation. Uh, the third option, just prior to Zephaniah and uh, before the Assyrian conquests, Kush or Ethiopia. That was the dominant power in Africa. The Kushite kings ruled Egypt from 720 to 633 BC. And for me, options one and three seem the most likely that we're talking about the edges of the earth, the furthest known, then known, uh, 
place south of Judah. Right. And also, that was the dominant power up until the Assyrian conquest. So, um, at any rate, they will be killed by my sword. My sword is how God styles the foreign armies that he will use in bringing judgment, whether uh, the Assyrians, when they conquer Egypt, or the Babylonians uh, years later. Uh, indeed, Yahweh puts his sword into the hand of the king of Babylon. That's the picture in uh, Ezekiel chapter 30, verses 24 and 25. So I think that's the significance here uh, of Ethiopia. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Uh, yeah, I think I think that's right. And so just to be clear on the timeline, um, the Cushites, they lose control over Egypt to Assyrian forces around 633 BC then, right? And then it's later that Babylon defeats the Egyptian Assyrian forces at the Battle of Carchemish in 605 BC. So is this a a good time stamp then, Nick, on the letter of Zephaniah, since he still refers to the Cushites? Would that place the letter definitely before 633 BC? Uh, definitely could, yeah. Okay. Um, let me break the fourth wall here. Did we miss... One uh, question for verse 11 about the coastlands. Did they eventually all bow down? Uh, did the coastlands eventually bow down to... Uh, you know, we didn't mention that. <laughs> I think we skipped. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back. Verse 11. Let's backtrack. Verse 11. Nick, did all the coastlands, islands, did they eventually bow down to Yahweh? Well, the text says that uh, they... Would and so I think they did, and most commentators see this phrase as having messianic implications. And so, what that means is when Christ vanquished his supernatural foes in the cross, uh, that's that's when, or at least uh, that's the what the uh, primary uh, achievement right in the cross, and so. Dishonor now, the rulers and authorities, Colossians two fifteen. Exactly, and and there's a case to be made. That's before anything gets applied to us personally. That's the the primary emphasis of the cross. But uh, now, though, the sun never sets on true worship of Yahweh, as each in its place, including the far flung islands, worships the one true God. So, yeah, I think eventually that did happen. They did bow down to Yahweh in Messiah. Uh, what do you think, Alex? You know, this just came to me each in its own place. Doesn't that bring us back to the woman at the well, uh, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, right? Where neither in this mountain in Samaria or in Jerusalem at the temple will uh, true worshipers worship God, but it will be in spirit and in truth, which is an arena, arena not um, pinpointed uh, or stuck down to one foundation on on the earth but it can cover the whole earth and so that would bring this aspect into place that each of these islands could worship yahweh in their own place and still be in the presence of yahweh so yeah agreed messianic ties still brought into there ties well again into the remnant theme already presented and uh and by the way church the job's not done yet the church still has more disciples to make of all the nations before Jesus' return in the final day of judgment. And that's that ultimate divine reversal where the gods of the nations go away and people transfer out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Colossians uh, one twelve, I think that's at. 
Well, Nick, that was backtracking to verse 11. Now we're jumping forward. We already covered verse 12. Now we will be in verse 13. So here's the question. Judgment on Assyria. We've made it to the north now. We've done west, east, south, north, Assyria. When will Assyria be destroyed and Nineveh made like the desert? So when when Zephaniah and Nahum also, by the way, a contemporary, and you can see the archives for more on him because uh, we have covered that book also. That's right. But when, when Zephaniah is preaching his prophecy of doom for the Assyrians, they're at the height of their power. Their downfall is unthinkable. And yet, come uh, 612 B.C., when Nineveh will fall, less than two decades approximately from when uh, Zephaniah prophesies, uh, this will happen. And so... Uh, desolation, dry wasteland like a desert. In their heyday, Assyria, they were lush and fertile. They had an abundance of water. But uh, now, they will be an arid desert. And in fact, that's the case now. Uh, even today, it's a, uh, an arid desert. So, um, that... I think looks to the downfall of Assyria could just be kind of highly figurative language, poetic language uh, for the desolation that Nineveh would become, the destruction that would be visited upon Assyria. It is uh, essentially irreversible. Uh, So uh, that's what I see there. Uh, Any ideas, Alex? I think that's, I think that's well said. So Alex, verse 14 you have uh, several animals, herds, wild animals, desert owl, screech owl, um, the raven. So you have all these animals mentioned in verse 14. What's the meaning of the specific animals that will dwell in Nineveh? Right. Uh, some translations say um, all kinds of beasts. Uh, some say beasts of every nation. That's interesting. Uh, mine says beasts which range in herds. So you have these beasts beasts but there's a broad range of how that's interpreted how that's translated um looking between translations and greek text and hebrew text the beast could be uh the owl the pelican the chameleon uh the the hedgehog seems to be the constant in between all of these they all agree that there's a hedgehog in there somewhere Hmm. uh birds uh sometimes a raven is mentioned and so it's really strange, like these specific animals that are mentioned. Um, they're not particularly desert-dwelling animals. Um, the ESV notes, uh, footnotes, that the identity of the animals rendered is uncertain. And, uh, yeah, I agree. It was really hard to <laughs> just do searches for these animals and the words that are used for these animals. It's hard to say. It's hard to say what they are or why they would be in the desert. Uh, but I have an idea, but I don't know. What do you say, Nick? Well, yeah, it's, it's hard to say exactly what animals are being considered. But even if we can't specify what animals and or birds are in view here, what is evident is that the once exultant capital city, as it's described in verse 15, the once great nation, uh, it has now become this desolate and ruined place, and it's only fit for wild animals. 
Um, so, so that's what I see here. Uh, any kind of concluding thoughts about that? Yeah. So I'm just I have a tentative uh, theory that I'm going to throw out here for Zephaniah two. I do find it interesting, especially as we do our featured creature each week, how common it was believed that demonic entities inhabited the desert and wasteland. Uh, it seems that if Yahweh says Nineveh will be made a desert and desolation, which is a pattern seen in other judgment texts, like against Edom, uh, I think we've covered that. And then he says, as a result, it will be inhabited by all kinds of strange creatures. Uh, it's at least possible in my mind then that since these creatures can't be identified, that these animals are actually referring to demonic entities. Um, and that it's a it's a common theme this judgment comes upon this nation it turns into a wasteland it's inhabited by these strange creatures these wild beasts in some texts like we've seen in isaiah it's easier to prove that we're looking at demonic entities but in the current passage uh it kind of remains unknown because you can't quite uh place any of these animals with a specific demonic entity and so it's it's sometimes the evidence is there sometimes it's not so i'm gonna argue for based by association with other judgment texts and demonic entities that these are also referring to yeah your your place is going to be an uninhabitable place except for the demons they'll inhabit that place i don't know any final thoughts nick so kind of like uh what figurative poetic language for these uh, malevolent spiritual entities that typically have their place out in the wilderness. It's either that, now, like these... Now they're going to invade these these ruined cities. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's either that, like these are placeholders for demonic entities, like people understand that this kind of animal is actually a common symbol, a representative of this demonic entity. Either that, or these really are the names of demonic entities but we just don't have any textual evidence to prove that from hmm. uh you know other ancient near eastern sources or or uh manuscripts so one one of those two things i think so uh but uh, as i said i can't prove it it's tentative it's just a theory but it does fit a pattern we see in other verses other passages well nick last question verse 15 why would nineveh say uh i am and there is no one besides me. What what does that mean? Uh, well, uh, it's a big no-no. <laughs> I can tell you that because uh, this is a title that is reserved for Yahweh. Isaiah forty-seven verses eight and ten. Just a couple of examples of where this phrase is uh, uh, a declaration, uh, a self-revelation of God of Yahweh. And so Nineveh has taken what is properly Yahweh's and has ascribed that to itself. And so this, coming from Nineveh, seems to be a declaration of pride, arrogance, power, independence. Uh, they, they need no one, and uh, really there is no one else because uh, they are Nineveh. In short, I, I think it's, it's blasphemous. It's uh, in some way, I guess, what we would expect from a, uh, a pagan city, a pagan nation. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, the taking of something from the one true God and giving it to either themselves or to one of their deities, uh, I think, is is a typical practice. But uh, definitely blasphemous. Uh, what do you think, Alex? 
you know, I think that this is not a statement of divinity um, or even necessarily blasphemous in that sense. I think this is a statement of superiority. So in other words, when you when Nineveh says, I am and there is no one besides me, it's a statement of comparison. No other nation compares, no other city compares to me, to Nineveh. So personified Nineveh is saying this. Um, also, uh, Babylon will say this about itself. Personified Babylon will say the very same phrase. There is no one. I am and there is no one besides me. And that's Isaiah 47, 8. Um, now, as you mentioned, Yahweh does say that same thing about himself. That's in uh, Isaiah 45, uh, verse 5. And when Nineveh and Babylon, when they say these things, they're technically true at the time and the height of their power. No other nation does compare to them at that point in time. But for Yahweh, when he's talking about himself, uh, it's always true because no other God compares to him, the most high God. So did Nineveh recognize that other nations still existed? Of course, but they couldn't compete. They couldn't compare. And so it is with Yahweh and the other gods. There's only one creator God, the Most High, and the other gods, though real, they can't compare, they can't compete. And so I, I kind of, what I'm saying is that that phraseology is, I think, a, a saying, something that you would say to lift yourself, to exalt yourself as being the best in whatever category you're describing, whether it be a nation, a city, or a deity. And so that's uh, the way I view that. Well, we're going to move on to the featured creature, Nick. Any final thoughts before we carry out the uh, next segment? Nope. All right. I am ready for featured creature. The featured creature. Well, this week's featured creature is Azazel. Nick, tell us about Azazel. So, Azazel, or Azazel, some people in the Marvel Universe, I guess, pronounce it that way. But... um, (laughs) That's right. Uh, he is, or, well, it. This this word uh, shows up a total of four times in the Hebrew Bible. All of the occurrences appear in Leviticus 16, verse 8, verse 10, verse 26. Twice in verse 10, by the way. The references to Azazel occur in the ritual of the Day of Atonement. Two male goats are selected and lots are cast over them. Uh, One is chosen for Yahweh. The other is chosen for Azazel. Uh, And the goat, both goats are, uh, they comprise this single sin offering. uh, Verse 5 tells us. But the goat for Yahweh is... Uh, slaughtered, its blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat, and it uh, makes atonement for the holy place, the tabernacle, and uh, the altar. The goat of Azazel is kept alive and essentially just stands there as the priest slaughters the other goat and I don't know, it's just hanging out until the priest is, has completed making atonement for the holy place, the tabernacle, the altar. And then he places his hands over the head of the goat. He confesses the people's sins. 
which this goat will then bear into the barren places. Uh, verses 21 and 22 of Leviticus talk about that. He is sent away into the wilderness. Uh, then the priest washes himself and he, uh, all this ritual purity. And then uh, that's when atonement has been made for uh, the people. Um, verse 33 of Leviticus 16 says, He shall make atonement for the sanctuary, he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. So that's the ritual. There are other animals involved, but we're focused on this Azazel uh, word, this term, this thing. And there are four prominent ideas that I, I found. And perhaps the most prominent theory is that Azazel is a demonic entity, perhaps even Satan himself. This is a theory that... Uh, the early church writer Origen held. He writes about it against Celsus in 6 verse 43 of, of that work. It's found rebirth in Seventh-day Adventist circles that uh, Azazel is Satan, or another name for Satan. Uh, but there are problems that abound with this interpretation and I'm not sure how to address those problems except uh, to kind of go through them. Because I, I know Alex, this is, this is the position, not, not the part per se where Azazel is Satan, but you do believe that Azazel is a demonic entity. And so, I don't know, maybe as you go through, I'll, I'll kind of just raise my hand and say, well, but, <laughs> to present the, the counter. Um, Azazel, the second is Azazel is a geographic uh, location, maybe a cliff or a precipice, because what ended up happening is to make sure the goat didn't wander back into the camp, um, the tradition uh, that rose later was that they would kind of push the goat off a cliff to kill it. And um, so Azazel is that, that precipice, that cliff. Um, Azazel is a... Uh, noun for destruction or removal or entire removal, kind of an abstract noun. That's a, another uh, major theory. And then Azazel is fourth in the fourth place. Azazel is the goat that goes away. And the evidence for this is it comes from the Septuagint, um, because there, the term is translated as the one who carries away evil in verse 8. Um, in verse 10, it is the carrying away of evil and the, what, the removing uh, the, of sin, presumably. Uh, and then verse 26, set apart for release. Uh, the goat that's set apart for release. So, um where do I land with this? Um, I mean, I, the Septuagint, I mean, that's that's a very early witness, and for them to translate Azazel in that way, I think, speaks volumes. I do like the abstract noun idea. There are several kind of leading lights that have um, 
postulated that as a uh, a very good possibility. Um, so I don't know, three or four, option three or option four. Um, that's probably where I'm going to land with what Azazel is. However, <laughs> there is a case to be made for, <laughs> and it's a uh, relatively substantial case to be made for option one. Right, Alex? Yeah, I'll take option one. Azazel is a demonic entity. I don't think he is uh, Satan himself, um, but you're right. Origin has a statement that sort of leads uh, alludes to that idea. Um, uh, uh, and just a word about the Septuagint. I love the Septuagint. I prefer the Septuagint in, yeah, you in do, most cases. Yeah, you do, which is why this is surprising to me. <laughs> <laughs> but here's why I uh, didn't go with the Septuagint in this option. is because the Septuagint often uh, doesn't get right the names of deities known in the uh, ancient Near East when it's translating them. So, like, for instance, when it comes across Molech or Milcom, um, in the Hebrew they would have come across MLK. Uh, and they translate it as the king because that's the Hebrew word melech, uh, king. And so they miss out on what's actually being said there, referring to molech or milcom. And they do that with other th- things concerning deities. Um, like they usually don't translate Baal correctly. Um, they translate it as lord, which it can mean lord, but they also miss that it's usually referring to a deity, like the certain lord or deity over an area, or the Canaanite deity, Baal. And so, but they'll never translate it that way. The Septuagint always translated as, um, as lord or master. Uh, just yeah, like, but they're the ones that had donkey centaur. It, right, but they didn't have a they didn't have a one to one thing that said, oh, this is uh, the the thing that I'm I'm used to. To thinking about and so th- there are just several points in the well, isn't that interesting right they're not used to thinking about that they're not that used way. to yeah they're not used to thinking about canaanite deities or um uh, deities from ammon or moab uh probably because the the memory of those deities had sort of started to fade away by the time the septuagint was translated and so that that's why i think the names of deities are often not quite translated or translated at all, let alone correctly, in the Septuagint. So, um, but that's why we look at all the texts, right? We look at the Masoretic text and the Septuagint and all the supporting manuscript evidence for the for the Old Testament for the Bible. So, anyway, that's my um, uh, you know that's our little intro swordplay. But I do have a, a, a little speech about Azazel. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so here it is. Yeah, Azazel, featured creature, is a demonic entity. To be more exact. Azazel is an angel, a fallen angel, and like most angels, his name ends with El, signifying some description of Yahweh God. Azazel means something like God is fierce. This figure, Azazel, can be read about in pseudepigraphic works such as First Enoch and the Apocalypse of Abraham. But I prefer First I prefer Enoch because it's much older and reliable. So in First Enoch, the story goes, the sons of God saw the daughters of men and took them for wives, just like we see in Genesis 6. But in First Enoch, the sons of God are angels, classified as watchers, which is another term found in Daniel chapter 4. There were 200 watchers that made a pact to take human women. The leader of the watchers is an angel named Shimihaza, but another major leader was Azael or Azazel, depending on a manuscript you're looking at. 
And these fallen angels, they are credited with showing mankind all manner of forbidden knowledge, which resulted in the increased rate at which mankind sinned. Kind of like opening Pandora's box. Couldn't put it back in. Azazel taught humans how to make weapons of war, swords, shields, that kind of thing, etc. Azazel apparently is a fashion guru, I guess, because he showed mankind how to adorn and beautify women with gold and silver jewelry and makeup and dyes for clothing, that sort of thing, etc. So Azazel thus makes himself to be the ancient god of sex and war. Before God sends the flood, though, he sends first his archangels to go capture, bind, and imprison these watchers. And if you remember from our podcast on Tobit, our good friend Archangel Raphael is the one who is said to have bound Azazel. Interesting that the location of Azazel's imprisonment is said to be in the desert, buried under the earth with sharp and jagged stones crushing him until the day of uh, judgment to the final day of judgment so why did the israelites send the goat for azazel into the desert it's because that is where sin belongs out in the uninhabitable chaos away from god's people away from god's presence it's not a sacrifice to azazel it's an affirmation of god's judgment upon sin and those who promote sinful behavior go wait in the desert with the demons until the day of judgment. That's where you belong. Uh, Church father Irenaeus, in his writings against heresies from the second century AD, he quotes an elder who mentions Azazel as a powerful angel through which Satan uses to empower false prophets to perform miracles. So if you or someone you know decides to go out into the desert for a spiritual journey to find yourself and during that experience you come upon a mirage of something looking like a drag queen holding a sword then that most definitely means you have just met azazel and that's our featured creature (laughs) any uh (laughs) any things there nick i know you don't uh subscribe to that view but i uh, don't yeah (laughs) you've you've mentioned that already any (laughs) any things really grinding your gears here you want to get out well i mean like i said it 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 is probable that is probably um the most prominent theory um that that you come across in in academia and so um so a lot of of research has been done for that. My my issue is it's, I mean, a lot of what you described there is based on speculative fiction, uh, which is what I take the book of Enoch to be, um, First Enoch. Um, no doubt, um, a high point in intertestamental or Second Temple angelology and demonology, but. At the end of the day, it's just that speculative fiction, and so, and that's, and I think that could explain. I mean, why didn't the the translators of Septuagint um, translate Azazel as a proper name? Um, and and I I think you're right. They didn't have that in their in their in their uh, purview, their worldview, because it hadn't been invented yet, right? 
uh, first Enoch wouldn't come along until uh, second, third century BC. Well, first century, if you're following what Charlesworth. Um, but so, I mean, it, it just it hadn't been invented yet, and so the author or authors of First Enoch hadn't come up with it. That's why it's not there, is because, and why they didn't have that is because, and 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 even that, I mean, okay, so does doesn't that mean that it doesn't go back to Moses? You know, we're talking about over a, a thousand years before the Septuagint is even translated. Uh, so I, I I think there's just there's there's a lot of problems with it in in that regard. Um, so here's how I I view those problems, right? So mm-hmm. uh, there are uh, there are manuscripts in the Dead Sea Scrolls and fragments um, that are from First Enoch, and uh, it's it. And actually, a lot of scholars do date it back to the 2nd and 3rd century BC, which means if that's when you have fragments of it, then the tradition of it goes even further back. And so, uh, First Enoch, um, it, though not, uh, I don't think, you know, in, endorsed wholesale, 100%, everything in it, you know, is, is, should be completely relied upon. But First Enoch has this general outline to it, this general storyline that was believed to be, in fact, true by New Testament writers. And so New Testament writers, that's canon. That's Holy Spirit-inspired writing. And so if it's considered true by them, the basic general storyline and outline— and by the way, this is also carries through to the uh, ch- church fathers, all the early church fathers— uh, then um, it deserves to be, I think— um, you know, recognized, studied the the effort put into seeing, okay, which part of this was um, a part of the worldview of the biblical writers. And so, um, yeah, so First Enoch isn't some uh, insignificant piece of speculative fiction. I mean, uh, it's actually very significant. Um, uh, Most of uh, the p- portion of that storyline with Azazel and the Watchers and all that, that's the first 36 chapters. Most of that is in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, it's very early. It's very popular. Uh, one author noted that its influence and popularity in the Qumran community where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found uh, can't be understated enough, and its influence upon the New Testament and early church fathers uh, is enormous. And so it's worth considering and uh, con- continuing to to study and to unpack and so that's that's how I view that. And then as far as the Septuagint translators go, um, you know, they, uh, yeah, they, they probably didn't have Azazel uh, working in their wheelhouse, um, or they just didn't see it in the text. Again, because when you're working with Hebrew, you have um, consonants. You don't have vowels. And so you come across these consonants, and you're like, what's that? And so it's like, it's not even if you know of Azazel, um, or even if you know of, of Molech or Milcom, it doesn't mean it's uh, you're going to catch that in the Hebrew text without the vowels to go with it. And so it's, it's going to depend on that translator's uh, familiarity with um, ancient Near Eastern concepts and deities. And so anyway, that's sort of my, my view on that uh, concerning those problems. The other thing that comes to mind is I think there's somewhat of a parallel uh, already in the book of Leviticus, just two chapters earlier, you have the ritual for cleansing a leper. And part of the ritual is you have two birds. One is 
killed, and the other, you dip it with uh, cedarwood, crimson yarn, hyssop into the blood of the bird that was slaughtered, and then you release that living bird into the open field. And uh, and there's there's no debate about what's going on there. You know, we're not talking about, you know, the bird is, you know, going away to some demon. Uh, at least I haven't seen any discussion about that. And so I think that's somewhat of a parallel of, well, yeah, that there's this picture of release and um, the, the, the leper is cleansed. He's pronounced clean. He still doesn't make an offering uh, at the temple, but I think this, uh, this scapegoat on the Day of Atonement is like that as well. Uh, again, somewhat of a parallel where something, one of them dies and, and his blood is used uh, to make atonement for all the, you know, the holy place and the altar and, and all that. But then for the, the cleansing of the people, it's this goat, the scapegoat that is sent away into the wilderness. Just like that bird is released, that living bird is released into the open field. So also the goat, just he goes into the wilderness. And it's all a picture of a release. I think it's all pointing to also the, the typology there, pointing to what Christ would eventually do. But Does it say that the sin of the people is laid onto the bird? Uh, no, because um, that's the first part of the ritual is the cleansing um, to be pronounced clean. And then he goes in and he makes, I think he makes a sin offering after that with, a, with some animals, but that's why I call it somewhat of a parallel. Not an exact, but somewhat of a parallel to, uh, and I mean, the other thing is, okay, cleansing a leper, um, I, I don't want to equate that with Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement, that, that was the big deal, right? That was, that was the ritual. But I do think there's somewhat of a parallel there where you have two things, one dies, one lives, the living thing is sent away. So... And that'll do it for today's podcast. We had technical difficulties, so I'm going to close this out here. Uh, feel free to repost the show on social media and uh, spread the word about the podcast. If you have any questions, email us at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in to Zephaniah Chapter 2. We'll finish up Chapter 3 next week on another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.